Well, okay, February the 10th, 2019, and we're in lesson number 57. 57. Since we started our study of Matthew uh, about 18 months ago, we continue to do that. Come on in. Come on in. <laughs> it's all right. No. <laughs> we're good. Come right in. As I said earlier, we're back looking at Matthew chapter 7 this morning, beginning with verse 7, 7 through 11. Hopefully we'll get through that. We should. Um, we've been listening to Jesus speak pretty much directly to His disciples. We'll probably notice a bit of a change in that regard as we get closer to the end of this particular passage of Scripture with verse 11. By that, he'll. it was appears to be rather evident that he moves from addressing specifically his disciples to those who are outside the fellowship. So we'll look at that. Um, this sermon is encouraging, very encouraging as he speaks to his disciples, quite frankly about prayer because he begins in verse 7 of chapter 7 by telling his listeners to ask, to ask, and I'll read those verses to you in preparation this morning. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? So this is what we have this morning. He's telling His disciples to ask. He's using language which assures them that they are in an environment where they can ask. And that their asking will be effectual. That God will hear and that God will answer. What an encouraging message that is. The admonition is supported by a parallel passage in Luke chapter 11. Beginning with verse 2 there. It's exactly what he's talking about. And it might be interesting to note that this is really on the heels. If you remember uh, some time back, we looked at the model prayer. Okay, remember, this is still the Sermon on the Mount. This is still one address here. So Jesus has already uh, breached this issue of prayer. We refer to it, of course, I think more correctly as the model prayer. We talked about that when we went through those passages. Some call it the Lord's Prayer. It's more the model prayer. And uh, he, he also has in there that follows a parable about persistence in prayer. So he revisits that topic just briefly and tells his disciples that they are to ask. There's a command in that. That they are to ask and they can ask in confidence, knowing and believing that as Christ's disciples, God will answer. He will answer. A lot of people read these passages as they do much of Scripture. And we've seen this mindset emerge before. They read it with this idea that what this represents is some sort of magical formula. We've used that phrase before. Some sort of 
assurance that if you just say the words, okay, such and such is going to happen. And that certainly is not indicated here. That's not what he's talking about at all. Even sincere prayers are still dependent upon what? What would our sincere prayers remain dependent upon? God's will. And God's will is just one of those things that we look at when we look at what's required or what's involved, if you will, in having our prayers answered. We'll look at more of that in just a moment. What you have here, he says, ask, he says, seek, and he says, knock. And these are three imperatives, the way they're referred to, imperatives out of the Scripture. Imperatives, that means they're, they're important. They're specifics. They are necessary. And they're all just metaphors for prayer. He's talking about the same thing. It's not really necessary to go back and look at the particular Greek word that's used for for ask and knock and seek. You can do that, but they're all metaphors for, for prayer. They're very emphatic in their original language. They are very specific. They express a confident attitude towards God. Toward our Heavenly Father. And we're to ask. You notice here there's not any limitations put upon this. None whatsoever. No limitations. They're referred to more specifically as present imperatives. And what you have there, again, grammatically speaking, normally when you have that, these present imperatives, there are three here, it's normally a command for a person to begin something and to continue that action. This element about continuation is important here. So that in itself, it's not just words that can be spoken that somehow, as I said, magically just gets God going in our direction, ready to answer the the whims or whatever, the desires even of our heart, and even the sincere desires. Because this is not everything that God says about prayer. This particular passage here is in no way definitive. We would have to consider other areas. We mentioned one, the element of God's will, which would be involved. Even Christ prayed, and we'll see it later. In Matthew 20, in the 26th chapter, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Perhaps a lot of people hear that and they say, oh yeah, well that's the caveat, right? That's the caveat. I can't have what I want. I can't have what I truly think I need right now. Oh, it's got to be God's will. Well, yeah. And that should be our desire, not for our own will. Surely, we have enough faith to say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. I see a hand back there, Chris. Give you the desires of your heart. I think it's Psalm 37, yeah. Absolutely. Do you want God's will? Let's just answer that. Or do you want what you want? Can we not say, Lord, I think I know what's needed here. I have your word in my heart. I may have a little experience in this area. I'm getting counsel from other people. But what do you want? What is your will right now for me? Would you not agree that takes a little different level of confidence and belief on the part of a person? And This is the way that we should approach Him. So God's will for sure. But faith itself. Having faith. Not just the words but having genuine faith, believing that God is who He says He is. 
that He works as He says He works. That we're honest with ourselves regarding our request. There's also another area that we've looked at to some extent when we talked about prayer. And that's the element of forgiveness. Being willing, uh, being, I guess you could say, caught up in our forgiveness of others. And we were told earlier as we studied uh, this thing about approaching God with an unforgiving spirit towards someone else doesn't put us in a posture of hearing God's Word or hearing God's uh, answer to any particular prayer. He would be obviously more concerned about our own heart during a situation like that. So He tells us in His Word those three things. This issue of forgiveness. This issue of faith. And then, of course, the issue of whether or not what we're praying about is within the will of God. Those three would be predominant. But it doesn't keep him from using this very strong word and these three imperatives together, ask and knock, ask and seek and, and knock. But that word ask, if we were to dwell upon it just a moment, is to call or to crave or to desire something. So it talks about a person's uh, whole heart, their whole intent toward their asking. It's what they want. You've got to want it. It's got to be your desire. And if it is, we certainly want God's will wrapped all around that, that asking, do we not? We want to make sure that we're on target with the way we're thinking, the way that we're, the way that we're praying. The previous use of the word in Matthew involves asking to supply a need. You know, we looked at that when we looked at practical needs. It's really the same word. It implies, or implies rather, dependency upon God as the faithful supplier of His children. So when Christ uses this particular word, He's used it before. That's exactly what He's talking about. Someone who comes in confidence, someone who comes with understanding, Someone who comes with a pure desire, not just for what they want, but for God's will to be done. And that's exactly the way that we want to come. Quarles mentions in, again in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and when he looks at these passages, he sees a, an overriding or primary purpose in these passages. And he states this, Jesus' intention was to stress that what he refers to as a scatological salvation or ultimate salvation is a gift granted to His disciples who approach God as spiritual beggars. And they humbly plead for God to give them the undeserved privilege of entering the kingdom. So he goes back and looks at these, this particular passage that we're looking at this morning and he looks at it in light of its broader scope. MacArthur himself, when he's talking about these verses, he says, in fact, he titles in the, in the commentary, he titles it talking about love. Alright? The way that we approach God. The way that we approach other people. And they're looking at the primary goal, the primary theme, if you will. You see evidence of that also if you look in the uh, passages in Luke, Luke eleven thirteen, where Luke actually translates this verse, he does, you know, where it talks about the good gifts in the verse, Luke puts Holy Spirit. That's his interpretation of what was being talked about. He refers to the Holy Spirit. 
Not just good gifts. Well, what kind of good gifts? The things of God, not things. He's not talking about the necessities of life like he was earlier. He's talking about the deeper things. So Quarles would say this, this runs closer to the overall theme about what this whole segment of the Sermon on the Mount is talking about. It's talking about having a right heart toward God, loving God, loving other people properly. In essence, being noticeable as the children of God. That's what he's talking about. So that's interesting. A little deeper, I guess you could say, as we look at that and we look at the overall theme. So we're to ask. We're to seek. We're to keep seeking. You know, it's the same word again that he uses in Matthew 6.33. So once again, what he's, what he's talking about there is something that's very, very spiritual. Why? Because there he's talking about seeking the kingdom of God. Seeking the righteousness of God. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about practical necessities in life. That's not what he's talking about at all. So he makes this connection. Present imperatives. Again, it's a command and it means to keep on doing it. This is to be our mindset. He's not talking about do it so that in the end you might receive things. He's not talking about that. It's more about the heart being prepared to seek the things of God. Do you follow what I'm talking about? He's more about it's more about what we are when we're asking. So Christ again makes a difference in our life. And how is that manifested? Well, the next verse says, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Remember, these are imperatives. These have to do with action. They have to do with doing. Right? And how do we identify people, if you will, who are true believers in God? Are they the people who are always in church, perhaps? No, not necessarily. Are they people who necessarily give out of their abundance? No, not necessarily. The Bible would say it's those people who obey the Word of God. James would tell us to be doers of the Word of God and not just hearers. Jesus would say, and He did say, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. That's what you will do. The Word of God will be precious to you. Your desire to fulfill, to submit yourself rather to the Word of God, that He might fulfill His presence within you, that is your desire. And God knows that better than anyone else. Everyone. And he's referring here when He uses that word for everyone who asks. He's talking in context about the children of God. God is our Father. Christians are our brothers and sisters. God's promises can be claimed by those who are living in obedience. James would tell us, you don't have your prayers answered. Why? Why does he say? You know the verse? You ask for the wrong motives. You don't ask God is the first thing he says. You try to manipulate. You try to go through and get what you need in other means, even knowing what we know, and then when you ask, you ask for the wrong 
motive. God, like every other thing that we've studied here, is always about the heart. The heart of a person. What's motivating them to ask in this case. I think that's why it's important that the imperatives are there, that we are to continue doing this. It's to be a mindset. It's something that we pursue in our Christian life, having the right mindset and attitude toward God, even in what, certainly in what we are asking of Him, because we're, we're told to come, we're commanded to ask. He wants that. Oh yeah. This is his desire. That's what he wants to do. And you see that evidence throughout the Word of God. God is not, a, he's not against giving. He's not against uh, giving above and beyond. He talks about opening up your heart, trusting Him, and He'll shower blessings upon us. He says you won't even be able to receive them. That's what he's talking about. Yeah. Right. So again, excellent. It's about the preparation, the legitimacy of the heart. Only God knows that. We're hard-pressed, if you will, to judge. And we just got through talking about judgment. Judge another person in that regard. It's not for us to do that. First Peter 3.12. Thank you all. Our allegiance must be to God and to God alone. Our desire is for submission to Him. And again, these present imperatives suggest a perseverance being present as well. I love it when, you, when in, in the course of my study, you just pick a word, a word like ask, and you start getting an idea of what that meant to those folks. We just say, well, we ask, you know, it's just a word, it means to you know, make, make a request. But so many times it means something so much more. So many times the, the Greek word tells you how to ask, how long to ask, when to ask. And there are different words that might be translated in English, ask, but it's a different word and it means something else. And when Christ said this, that's what they heard. That's the message they got. I've got to ask for the right reasons and I've got to, to keep on asking. And again, a follow, this, is, this splits it a little bit. It's not just to get what you want, but to make sure that the heart is right in the asking. It's always up to God to do according to His will. And that is sufficient. If we can say today that, you know, there's this issue in my life, there's this, there's this challenge, whatever, but I'm confident I ha God is hearing me. There's nothing in my heart that I know of, as Paul says. There's nothing that I know of that's hindering me from Him doing what He needs to do. He don't have to fix me up first, or as we said earlier, you know, deal with an unforgiving spirit in my life, or it could be anything. 
He's not having to do that. I can hear His voice and I'm satisfied with that. How do I hear it? Through His Word, through His Spirit. He will never contradict that. Never. He may not give you a directive that you want. It may not be as clear, but He'll guide that next step. And when He's done with you, you'll be able to look back and say, I followed Him in faith. And I'm the better for it. I'm closer to Him. I believe even stronger because I had to exercise what we like to refer to, and I think rightly so, as blind faith. Because it tells us, just as you shared, and we'll get to that, Chris, uses the example of earthly fathers. He wants to give us good things. He does. I tell you, we, it's so, it's, it, it grieves me to know that we live in a society today where there's a whole set of beliefs that takes this thing about getting from God and makes that the religion. That's not it at all. Not at all. Let's look at verse 9 in chapter 7. As we say, and here we are, Kristen, what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? And I enjoyed the commentary on this portion of Scripture. In particular, uh, this uh, quote here from MacArthur says, even if the son discovered the deception before breaking his tooth, <laughs> having received a stone instead of bread, if he had discovered the deception before that, his heart would be broken by his father's cruelty. He asks for bread, he gets a stone. I love this picture of God looking over us and taking care of us, our Heavenly Father, and who will give us what we need. Many, many times in direct response to our request. Because our heart is right. We can go on to verse 10. Or if He asks for a fish, He will give Him a snake, will He? And once again here, you have to look at the culture, the history, the words used. Again, I say it, to hear it like they heard it. So what is this talking about? Okay, This verse is not speaking about Him substituting the request for a fish with a, with a deadly snake, you know, making this substitution with an item of, of defilement is what's going on here. Because Leviticus speaks about that plainly, Leviticus 11.12. Nobody's going to eat a snake. It's not the issue about it being deadly. But it was about deception. It was about defilement. That's what they would have heard when the issue of a, of a snake came up, much less eating one. He said, that's not the way. God's not up there. He's not, he's not a cruel God. That's not what He is. Well, they continue, these verses do, and they're pointing towards something. And we're going to get to that, that something when we get to verse 12. Our preparations for bringing ourselves before God, our preparations in examining our heart as we are to do to make sure that our heart is, is clean, that it's cleansed. Yes, it allows us to come before God with greater confidence. But it also allows us to work and live and deal with our fellow man, if you will, with greater efficiency and with a greater degree of representation of our Heavenly Father. That's what our life is about. That's the purpose 
of our sanctification, our continual sanctification, is to bring honor and glory to Him, not just in our relationship with Him, but certainly with others. So when we get to verse 12 here in a moment, what we know is the golden rule, then we'll be able to look back and say, well, these verses are preparatory for that verse as well. He's preparing us. He's building up to that. We're to put love into action. We're to act with compassion and sacrifice. This comes from a heart that is right before God. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2 tell us, Therefore, by be imitators of God, is Paul's admonition to the church there at Ephesus. He says, as His beloved children, which we are, if we know Him by faith and repentance, walk in love. And that word walk that he uses so many times is a word that describes who we are, the way we are, what we are. Today we would say, well, that's the way we roll. Okay, well, That's what he's talking about. You walk. What people think about you. The, the predominant persona about you that's put forth. The way that you deal with people. All of those things. Your walk. What is your norm? Both toward God and toward other people. Just as Christ also loved you, He says, and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He's talking about sacrifice for others. He's talking about what He says so many times, and I think I've got it here, to think about others. Yes, Philippians 2.4, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Dealing specifically with the heart. Why we ask. Why we serve. It's more important. The process, that introspection is more important than just pleading with God for Him to grant our request over a particular thing. We think we know what we want and need. I can assure you, and the Word would assure us, He knows better than we do. And it says plainly that He knows what we need even before we ask. Does He not? Verse 11, if you, then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? Interesting that he would even interject here as a reminder because he's talking to his disciples. That seems to be clear here. He's talking to disciples. He's talking to followers And yet, he goes back and refers to them, and actually their nature, if you will, their human nature, as evil. It's the Greek word paneros. And it speaks about an effect. It speaks about an evil influence. Derelict or vicious is what it's talking about. So while he's teaching, and he takes this moment to literally remind his hearers, look, this is what you're, you're... Keep in mind what you are capable of. Keep that in mind. You can't approach God if that's your motivation. If you're operating out of your, your human necessity, if you're operating um, you know, from the flesh, as we would say, even on this side of salvation, it's important that we remember that, that we remember what we're capable of here. So here it's just literally a reference to man's fallen nature. And he mentions that 
here. Do you think that detracted from this good news about being able to ask and to seek and to knock and knowing that when we ask rightly within the will of God that God is going to answer that? And then all of a sudden he throws this in there about being evil. Did that detract from what he was trying to say to them? Or did it take their, the hearers there to a greater point of understanding? Do you think that was the purpose of it? To remind them about their dependency? To remind them about the grace of God in their life? See, that has everything to do with modifying, with chiseling, if you will, those things that we ask God for. That helps us to ask rightly. Because so many of the things that we would ask for in terms of priority might not be quite as high on God's priority list for the moment. you follow that? We want God's specific will. We want God's best. We simply want to yield to that. And we have a Heavenly Father who is more than capable, more than willing, as it says, to grant that. The real issue is, is that what we want? Or have we already decided what we want? We've decided what's best for us. How arrogant against holy and righteous God. So a reminder there, even in these you know, uh, compassionate and encouraging verses, a reminder of man's fallen nature right there. He says he wants to give us much more and we, we serve a God of much more. That's what He's all about. Remember Solomon's prayer? Lord, just ask what you want. What, what if you had a blank check, as it were, from God? Ask what you want. I'm going to grant it. Lord, just, just help me. I love it. Just, just help me. Give me wisdom. He said to know how to lead this your people. Just give me wisdom to do that. And what was God's response? I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Was he still a fallen person in his nature? He was. <coughs> what did God do to him? Hey, <laughs> man, nobody's ever going to have what you're going to have in this life, okay? Nobody is. Nobody will ever be richer than you. This is God's desire is to pour out, but God will do what he has to do. And he later did the same thing to him. He will do what he has to do to continue that sanctification process in our life. All we can do is submit to Him. That's all we can do. Luke 6.38 We had this verse before, maybe even last week. Given it will be given to you. They will pour out into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. We talked about who was measuring for who last week. That's God's doing the measuring. It's God who's doing the judging, not not us, not others of us, not in context. It's not Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Is this what we want? Above and beyond the things of this life, which we've already studied, God is going to supply. He's going to do that. Do we want these things, these, these spiritual blessings that He's going to provide for us in this life? Those things which are going to allow us to serve Him to a greater degree? To be clearer in our service for Him? More effective for Him? 
to say nothing about the continual change process, the sanctification process in our own life. Is that truly what we want? We have to distinguish that from the things of the world as we've already shared, even the things that we think we need that are so pressing in our life. John 13.1 Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father, listen, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. That's what, that's, that's the promise that we have from Him. He loves us. He cares for us. He's talking here. He's making an example with an earthly father, even in his earthliness, having a desire, genuine desire to give unto his children and to make available for them. But we have a heavenly father who has purpose to love us continually, to continually have our best interest at heart. And that goes far beyond what we can understand and perceive, even regarding our request of him. Let's just leave it to Him. Let's just submit ourselves to Him. We're to come. We are to ask with a clean heart. So, we're at verse 12 of chapter 7. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Interesting how Jesus brings these, this issue of love for others and the demonstration of our love and, and service to Him. He brings these things together even on the heels of these, these previous verses that we're, that we're looking at. MacArthur sees this as a summation of Jesus' teaching on right relationships. As I said earlier, he looks at this whole passage as dealing with love. Love for God and love for other people and making sure that that love within our heart is pure. And then it's, then it's right. Quarrel sees it more as a transition, if you will. And it is. I think it's both here. A transition, as I said earlier, from Jesus talking particularly to His disciples, where now He's going to start and He's kind of, kind of looking toward the passages we're going to look at where he's, he's going to be talking about an inner evaluation about whether or not a person belongs to Christ or not. We'll get up to Matthew 7.21. Profound saying of Christ. Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But who? We've already covered it. Say it, brother. Yeah, he who does the will of my Father. So the evaluation continues. And it will have an effect on the things that we ask God for. Therefore, again, a specific word that points specifically to the preceding text. In everything, everything that's gone forth, he says, therefore, there's more information. Listen to what he's about to say. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law, and this is the prophets. And again, that's why MacArthur titles his section, Start Loving in Commentary. That's the, the title of this whole section 7 through 12 well he mentions here the law and the prophets that phrase and of course we found that back in chapter 5 verse 17 
Quarrel says that this forms what they refer to as an inclusio. This is something that acts as brackets. Uh, back in 517 where it was first mentioned. And it brings us up to this point. It allows us to look at all the information in that area and find a primary theme. What did we talk about in those areas? What did we study? Do you recall? We talked about the law. We talked about deeds of righteousness. We talked about possessions and our right attitude toward those things. We talked about people and relationships. We did. Matthew 22, 36-40 is that passage of Scripture, you know, the greatest commandment. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Do you recall the answer? What's the name? What, what did the Jews call that answer? The Shema? Okay, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He said the second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? And then he said on this hangs all what? The law and the prophets. So we're back, back to that. And we look forward to that verse. Again, it's about the heart. So, the golden rule as we know it is here, right? The golden rule. William Barclay said this is the Mount Everest of ethics. The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Brilliant, right? Succinct. Clear. Informative. Serves as a way to evaluate our words, our actions, the way that we treat other people, the very way that we think about other people. Thinking rightly. Thinking the best of others. The world has taken this phrase and turned it on its end. And I've even shared in a, <clears throat> in a communication class I've taught at the police department and a little bit in management classes because the world takes this. The world would say, do unto others before they do unto you. Right? All's fair, right? Or they might say, do unto others as they do unto you. In other words, if they've done it to you, give it right back to them. Okay? That's the world's way. I'll even throw one in here from Disney's Aladdin. Jafar. Remember him? Anybody I got kids? I mean, if you let them listen, you know these things by heart. Jafar, the villain. His, his version of the golden rule, and I love it, it says, he who has the gold makes the rules. That's worldly, isn't it? But this is not something new. There were other writings, if you will, throughout history where this, this sentiment, this truth, whatever, has been put forth. The Jewish Rabbi Halil says, what is hateful to yourself, uh, do not do to someone else. You have that in its essence. And you'll see that all these are couched in a negative type of context. The book of Tobit in the Apocrypha. Uh, what thyself hatest to no man do it says, or the Jewish scholars in Alexandria wrote, as you wish that no evil befall you, uh, but to be partaker of all good things, so you should act on the same principle toward your subjects and offenders. That came out of a, uh, a piece of correspondence just out of antiquity. Confucius even said, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. A Grecian king, do not do to others the things which make you angry when you experience them at the hands of 
of other people, or even out of Greek philosophy, what you avoid suffering yourself, do not afflict on others. Christ puts it in the positive. He puts it in the positive. Does He not? Do. This is the thing. Do it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That suggests a process. That suggests a preparation. That, that doesn't suggest that there's some, some incident that precipitated that. That's the way we are to operate. It's not a response. It's something that we do. We do unto others as we would have them do unto us. We treat them right. It could be in response to something. But that's not the impetus. It's that we're thinking about others as Paul had told us. We're thinking about the needs of others. That's our desire. We're not just focused upon the things of ourselves. And more specifically, we want, we're open to, we desire, we crave the power of God in our life to be effectual when we make our lives cross with the lives of others. That's what we're to do. That's what we are to be about. And it is a positive thing. I'd even say it's a privilege. We're talking about service. We're talking about ministry. We're talking about being the church. Not just asking God rightly for things. That for sure. That for sure. Yes. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Doing it without expecting anything. That's define. That's that's agape love. That's what that is. Or you know, let's give an example of that. Let's talk about. Maybe praying for someone who's wronged you. Someone who's in the wrong. And you, as Paul says, you who are spiritual in such a case, you being of a mindset, Lord, I want you to touch this person's life with the truth of your word. I want you to give them a clear understanding of what's going on here. I want you to through your word and through your spirit, move them out of this, this moment of self-deception. Move them out of this, this mindset where everything is about them all of a sudden. They're, they appear not to have their mind and heart set upon you. And you pray for that person. Listen, we, we don't pray enough. I understand. We don't. We don't pray enough. We don't take the concerns, even of the body. We don't take them and do that hard work of prayer. It takes time. It takes a bit of isolation to get away, to reprioritize, to open up our heart so we can approach God with a clean heart and begin to ask on behalf of those that we love and care about, certainly on behalf of those who don't know Christ and the forgiveness of sins. They're not a part of the kingdom. Lord, we want to be used. We want to have a clean heart. We want to ask. We want to seek. We're commanded to keep doing that. We're commanded 
to keep knocking, but not for things that's way down on the list. It's for His will to be done fully in our lives and those we pray for. Let's pray together.